the seven anchor, all you have to do is re recognize, hey, I just did something amazing. I feel great. And it, it could be the stupidest thing in the world. It's like, I did backflip into a pool. I didn't think I was going to be able to. Now I'm jazzed up. I'm like, did you see that? Anchor. You do that anchor and your body associates the two. And at first, the anchor is secondary because it happened and then you did it. Over time, the more and more you set it, the anchor becomes the primary and it takes your emotion to the Welcome to the Waste No Day podcast, a podcast specifically for and about the home services industry as it relates to plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and electrical. More than a podcast, Waste No Day is a credo, a determination, a mindset. It is a never-ending discipline. It is a refuse-to-lose pursuit. It is a wake-up call every morning to waste no day. Now here's your hosts, Brian Burton and Nate Minnick. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Waste No Day podcast. Your hosts, Nate and Brian, are hanging out with you one more time, and we are looking forward to a great conversation today with none other than the founder of Clover Marketing, Josh Kelly. We're going to have a great talk with him today about many things varying from sales training and what we need to focus on in our mindsets and attitude in the field to a new and unique concept about anchoring, which I think is going to be some good conversation. Looking forward to the show today. But of course, first, Brian and I are going to spend a little bit of time breaking it down for yourselves, and we're going to look to Brian for our quote. Anchors aren't meant to ground ships forever. Ships pick up anchors, sail the seas, go where they want, and settle down again. Temporarily. Ironically, anchors help you travel better. Your anchor helps you move safely between seas. Richie Norton. Hmm. Wow. All right. I'm not familiar with a lot of anchor quotes, but that was in depth. I like it. <laughs> we're going to talk about some anchoring that uh, Nate and I were pretty unfamiliar with, with uh, Mr. Kelly today. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's definitely a concept that I think is actually already present in my life. Um, I just didn't really know there was a term for it, I suppose. Yep. We're going to, we're going to talk some more about that, but for now, let's talk about training. Training. Practice. Right. <laughs> we ain't even talking about the game. We're talking about practice, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna uh call call the dude out um because this certainly isn't like me talking smack about him. I love this guy and I think he runs a, a great business. Um, so I'm not gonna use his name. But I got this text the other day and I get these kind of texts all the time where it's like uh, usually it's a question like how do I build a training program for my team um, a lot more techs will text me this which is like how do I get my boss the manager the owner whatever to like train us like you guys talk about to role play to you know it's always the role play thing I'm like you don't need somebody else to, to role play if you're really asking me how to make someone else make you role play I would like for you to just take the phone you're using to text that and smack yourself in the forehead with it <laughs> and, and then turn the video camera on and flip it around to face you and role play with the video camera. There you go. Right? Come on. Um, but, but when the boss, the manager, the, the, or a tech says like, how do I get someone to, to do more uh, structured training? 
I have various answers depending on where they're at now, but this one was a little bit different, so I thought I'd I'd uh, bring it onto the air without mentioning who it was. B man, what up, brother? You're killing it on waste no day. I'm eating it up like a fat kid in an ice cream shop. <laughs> I didn't have to read that part, but naturally. <laughs> Wanted to pick your brain on sales training and wanted to see if you have 20, 30 minutes to jump on a call with me next week. Our conversion rate is low, which I know means that we are not connecting with our customers. Have you run into this issue and how have you pulled your team out of this? I almost feel like they truly don't know what they are worth sometimes, which is very accurate. Would love to get your advice, brother. Thanks again. Um... I said with 70 field reps, yes, it happens all the time. And then I asked the crucial question, how is the role play going? I, I know what answer I'm going to get when someone says their conversion rates are way down. And I ask, how's the role play going? What, what answer do you think I'm going to get, Nate Minnick? Uh, role play? What is this thing that you speak of, Brian? What is this role play you speak of? Yeah, um, yeah it's it's pretty accurate. Well, if they listen to the show enough to contact one of us, they know what role play is. Whether yeah. they've ever done it before, that's a whole other story. And I can't, we can't emphasize enough how important role play is to anyone who's, who's doing things successfully. Whether they got successful and still role play is, is you know, probably a fair question. But whether they role played to get successful Hopefully that's the case. If not, it took them a lot longer than it had to, right? Because you're going to practice to get good. Whether you're practicing only in front of your clients, which is going to take a lot longer, or you're practicing on someone in your off time between speaking with clients, that's going to be a heck of a lot quicker. Now you need to be role playing with someone who is holding you accountable. But anyway, let me get back to the, to the question at hand. I said, how is the role play going? The answer was, we have not had a role play training in about a month. It's been all about process, 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 with my service or which my service manager has been running. We're trying to get consistency dialed in on running calls. And my answer was, you know, what my answer would typically be. I said, nobody gets excited about a process, man. It's absolutely necessary, and you have to have them, but it can't be everything. They need to leave excited to hit a call in the morning, more excited to ask someone to buy and even more excited about the opportunity to try that new rebuttal out if they're lucky enough to get an objection. That's where the closing happens when technicians, salespeople get excited. And uh, I'll leave, well, let me. He said, I see it, man. Energy needs to be raised in training and then moved on to our client's home. I'll message you on Monday. God bless you, brother. Keep doing what you're doing. Tell Nate I said what's up, and I'm waiting for that little chirp single to come out. Wow, Dude, I get that yeah. one a lot, bro. You and me both, brother. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to let that one fly because I get that one all the time. But I said it's not just energy. The role-playing over and over and over again and making sure they're crisp and ready to ask people to take ownership and then handle any objections with ease, then the very last thing they get is energized by the person running the meeting. He's actually visited our shop before at least once. And saw my training where, where, or as I said here, you saw how I do it. At the end of every meeting, I stand at the exit door and I fist bump every person who walks out, call them by name. 
and just say something exciting to them. Now that's for their sake for sure, but also my sake. Like I get, I get really energized out of that. So whatever I'm leaving that training room to go tackle, um, I'm energized by connecting with every person who was in there and just making sure they're all like excited to get going. And then he said, uh, you just pumped me up. Thanks, Brian. Have a blessed, blessed evening with the family. Uh, okay. And it's just pleasantries from there, but that's, that's, if you're in a slump right now, which if you're in the HVAC world, you probably are. We certainly are. Um, you're, you're, or I guess, depending on where you're at, maybe you're not in a slump if you're in Florida or, or Vegas or something, depending on the weather there, but like, it's super mild. Like it was 47 degrees this morning. It's June 16th. Depending on when you're listening to this, you might have no, it's June 16th, 2023 right now, as we're recording this. And, uh, it was 47 degrees in Pennsylvania when we woke up this morning. So it's like the heat has not arrived. Yeah, it's so, supposed to be 20 to 30 degrees higher than that in the morning. There's there's always the um, carry-your-own-weather Stephen Covey thing. And, you know, he wasn't an HVAC guy, but it was a, a perfect point for HVAC companies, which is you want to carry your own weather. And we have, you know, thousands and thousands of, of club memberships that we can tap and all, typically always have calls to run. We have our man Mike Vavrick here running a, an amazing call center. That can fill the schedules, but the way when you're in a seasonal area, the way you build your budget is, you know, you might have 50% of your year's budget built into, uh, you know, half of the second and half of the third quarter. Like you might build 50% of your annual budget into May, June, July, because the bulk of your revenue is going to be done when the heat gets here. So regardless of whether you carry your own weather, quote unquote, you're still going to see significant decrease in revenue if you get absolutely no weather whatsoever in those three months. There's almost nothing you can do about it. Like we go heavy on IAQ and trying to make up for that revenue. But if that's, you know, if if you're in one of those areas, you're going to be affected. You can do things to make up that revenue, but it's going to be difficult. And those things are? One of those things is going super, super heavy. If you're slow, then celebrate it. Awesome. We're slow. We're usually slammed right now. You guys know how it is. You're usually, you know, running two, three extra calls a day, and I'm begging you to come in and work on the weekend or whatever. More time to train. More time to role play. One issue is you have to make sure that you're training and role playing the right stuff, you know? And we try to give you as much as we can in, in these short episodes we do. It's, it's, it's 52 hours a week. I mean, we can't give you a ton, you know. A year. Or, I'm sorry, 52 hours a year that we're doing here. Maybe it's an hour and a half or whatever, but it's around 52 hours a year. Um, it's not enough. And we do, we try to give as much as we, as much as we do. Like, we, we try to give everything we do. We don't really try to hold much back um, outside of a few proprietary things. And certainly don't want to give away the franchise stuff. But whether you get with a franchise, which I think for the smaller companies is a very good idea, whether you're in a best practices group, BNI, whatever, or or just your network, you have to make sure that you're training stuff that's actually effective. And I can't tell you how many times I see the owner of the company posting a rebuttal he made up 
that he trains his techs on. And I'm like scratching my head where, how do I tell him that that's going to backfire on him without blowing his ego up, you know, and, and making him leave the group or whatever. It happens all the time. It's like part of, part of like probably Jordan walking into a, a, a high school basketball gym and watching a coach teach everybody how to shoot three pointers wrong or something. Um, I just compared myself to Jordan. Did you catch that? I name? caught it. You yeah, even, thank you. You didn't even give me that bite into a lemon look like you normally <laughs> will when I compliment myself or you for that matter. I'll add it in post. Don't worry. <laughs> All right, good. So, um, yeah, get with get with people who have done it really well in the past. Get with people who have structured training programs set up and that kind of thing and make sure you're training and role playing the right thing. But assuming we're already doing that, train more, role play more. Hold people accountable in that role play. Like when they, when they, there is no like, let's just agree to disagree. Nobody could have sold the call kind of thing. In almost every case, there's very few, you know, the, the sign, the sold sign is on the sign, the uh, for sale sign, the sold thing is on there and, and people are getting ready to move out because their house is sold, but they have to fix this one thing before they do. You never see that. In most cases, uh, a call can be sold in most cases, right? And the objections that you're hearing can be overcome. There's always someone out there who could have sold that job, or at least you need to tell yourself that because that's where the personal accountability is. So don't do the thing where someone just squirms out of role-playing and role-playing and role-playing until it sells. In role-play, you should never be using an objection that can't be overcome like, the house is literally sold. This is the last thing we have to do before we move out and the new family moves in. Don't do that. Why would you role play that? That's a no-win situation. So you're using objections that can be overcome. Now make sure they get overcome before that person ends a role play session. I like what you're saying there, Brian. And I think another thing that uh, you had actually mentioned off air was that you've been out of the game for a while and like the game has evolved to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. I hear I hear guys hit over the last few years, I've heard people hit me with objections that didn't really exist when I was in a truck. And I can't think of, I couldn't think of what they are when, it, when I said it, but very recently it's like COVID related things and just stuff that, you know, I haven't run a call in a decade. So people will hit me with objections and I don't have any way to practice overcoming the objection. So I have my trusted group of techs here who can hit me with that objection and I can say, go back in and try this and they'll do this and either tell me it worked or it didn't work, and I'll say, all right, we'll tweak it and try this. And then the, eventually we we funnel our way down to something that actually works for that. And I agree <clears throat> that most objections should be overcome throughout the entire process before you even ask the person to become an owner of the product. But I don't, I don't ever hang on that because, for one, if you ask people to buy things for a living, you are still, you are always going to run into the person that hits you with an objection at the end. Even sometimes one you thought you had already overcome. It's always going to happen. Not every call, but I mean, you're always going to run into an objection that you weren't ready for. So to say that you can train to the point where you never get an objection at the end, that's not real, right? It's silly. If that was the case, there would be 100% closers out there, and they don't exist. So 
we should always be working on objections. We should always be funneling down to one that works and one that works the majority of the time. Um, and we should always be training and, and role playing and getting people in front of each other to hold each other accountable to that role play. We're like, no, that wouldn't sell me. So keep, keep trying, do it again, do it again, do it again. And that's where you produce bulletproof, ferocious technicians who, who understand that trying one more time isn't making someone mad. Like if you're presenting a product or a service that you know is good for the person and you know three weeks after you got them to buy it, that they're going to write a review about you and say, I'm so glad I did that, then you, sh- you should be ferocious about getting them to do it. It makes no sense to me that you would collapse the first time they threw an objection out and walk away feeling like, hey, I did my job. No, you didn't. You're, you're not an order taker. You don't work at a company. You don't work at, at a McDonald's drive through If you did, you'd make 10 or $65 an hour or whatever they pay in your state these days. I have no Pretty idea close. Yeah, anymore. you nailed it. Uh, you, you're not that. You're not that. And even order takers now go, would you like, you like to supersize that or whatever they say i don't go to a lot of fast food joints but they're selling too you're you need to sell your products and services in most cases the client doesn't even know the stuff on your trust truck exists let alone standing there asking you for it so leave that um hey if they want it they'll ask me for it to the well those people don't listen to this show thank god so we don't have to worry about them right buddy well, speaking of people that do listen to this show, I was just reflecting upon uh, kind of the quote that we were joking about in the beginning there. We're talking about practice, you know, not a game. That's an Allen Iverson quote. Any guess from what year that came from, Brian? Five? 2002. Oh, two. Wow. Yes. So there are probably people listening to this all, to this uh, podcast that were not alive to hear that quote. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And it's just a reminder that, you know, the importance, one of the important uh, important things about role play is the consistency because the game changes over years, over decades. In fact, the game changes. And so like Brian was saying, the, the objections that he got 20 years ago or 10 years ago, they may not be the same ones that he's getting today or that the techs in the field are getting today. And so the consistency of the role play, number one, establishes the habit that this is something that I need to do. So it's that muscle memory, that mental memory that you are committing but then number two, you're actually getting real lifetime data from the field and you're able to interact and react in a safe place with people who are also getting shared experiences from different perspectives and saying, yeah, I had that one last week too. Here's what I did or here's what I said and this is how that happened. And so that collaboration along with the consistency of the habit is the recipe for some good success moving forward in the future. And so those types of things, uh, along with some other topics that we want to talk with our guest today about. But before we do that, we're going to do our review of the week, Brian. Life and career altering information. Five stars. Yeah, baby. Coming from a commercial industrial background as an electrician, I started my own company in March of 2021. Uh, That would have been two months after we started the Waste No Day podcast. One thing probably led to another. Ah, yeah, I got to think so. Soon after I happened across the Waste No oh, well, that goes. Soon after I happened across the Waste No Day podcast. Little by little, I literally built my company around the information I was taking in on a day-to-day basis. 
Today, we are a small residential electrical service company only who truly are waste no day bread. A big thank you to Nate, Brian, and all the guests who have selflessly given of themselves, selflessly given of themselves, their information and their professionalism. Our lives, our families' lives, and our careers have flourished as a result. Thank you both. He said Nate first. I'm not sure. I think we're going to cut this review out. I'm impressed you actually read it for what it said. <laughs> Normally you would have uh, just slipped those right around. You know what? This review was back in February. He didn't know any better. <laughs> By now, he, he figured that out. Well, thank you for the review. We appreciate that. Alan B. Tulsa Watts Wright Electrical. W-A-T-T-S. All right. Yeah, like okay, that. okay, right. okay. Yeah, yeah, got pretty it. good. All right. Appreciate it, Alan B. Appreciate everyone who has taken the time to jump. Taking the time. It's like 45 seconds of your day for crying out loud. <laughs> you know what I mean? Look, not everybody has to be so poetic as Mr. Allen, although we appreciate that. Just jump on there real quick. Open the Apple app. Scroll down a little bit. It says rating reviews. Click write review. And then either just hit the five-star button and just let her go or uh, write how the show's helped you out. Uh, or write how excited you are to hear that little chirp uh, single drop finally. Mm, yeah. I bet you there's a lot of listeners who don't even know what that means. <laughs> it's like the <laughs> Alan Iverson quote. Yeah. It's Where in did the past. Come from? Uh, I, I can't even remember. We were talking about something and I said that was my, my stage name or something like that. Oh, your, your rap name. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, Lidditz needs a uh, showing of a white rapper finally. Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Who doesn't, man? Yeah. Who doesn't? The world needs. Yeah. So, um, yep. Scroll down, click, write review, write us a nice review. Hit us with the five star. If you're on Spotify, just click the five star button at the top of the Spotify page. And uh, if if you're on neither, we don't care about those other platforms. So if you're on neither, then uh, hit us up on Facebook, man. Right? Don't like send me a private message, although we do appreciate that. I'm going to read it on the air anyway. So you might as well just tag us in a public thing and share an episode and tell your friends how cool the show is and help us uh, spread the message. But even if you don't, we still appreciate you listening. Absolutely. And you're going to appreciate listening to Mr. Josh Kelly as we put him in your passenger seat. Our guest today is Josh Kelly. He is the founder of Clover Marketing. Josh has helped in growing Parker and Sons from $6.5 million in sales to over $200 million in sales last year. Since selling to the Wrench Group, he has worked one-on-one -on -one with nearly all the major PE groups and grown hundreds of companies of varying sizes all across the globe, scaling them from seven to eight figures and some even passing over nine figures in revenue. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hey, how we doing, man? Good to talk to you, Josh. We spoke at Vertical Track for a few minutes, a little bit about your dad's book and how you guys did what you did with the business, which we'll let you get into here shortly, and a little bit about something we'll talk about later, which is Clover Marketing. But it was good to meet you and good chatting with you, and we have we wanted to make the show happen immediately, and that was in November, as I recall. It's taken us this long to get to it, but you're a busy guy, so I'm glad we have you now. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on, and yeah, it's... uh Hey, you know how it is, man. Things come up. Life comes up. Business comes up. I'm sure you guys can be find yourself entirely too busy sometimes, too. 
Oh man, yep. You ain't kidding. We we're missing lunch right now to do this show. You should know. <laughs> <laughs> when I say missing it, I mean you're gonna it's hear us chewing here yeah, shortly. You can just eat. No one's gonna know. I bet like half half the people listening to this podcast are like right in the middle of a sandwich right now. My wife tells me the entire county can hear me eat, so I think they would know if I'm eating. Ironically, she won't hear you eat on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it depends what you're eating. If you like slurping soup, then probably or, or well, she, crackers or, you know. Nate was no. making a joke about my wife not listening to the show, which is uh, oh, that's fair. usually oh, that's true. Fair. Yeah. Occasionally she drops in and listens <laughs> to an episode. Josh, we're excited to listen to you today. And as is typical for our guests, we always like to understand their backstory. So, could you talk to us about how you grew up in the trades, worked your way through it, and then what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, my father is Paul Kelly. A lot of people know who he is. I know our family business, the largest, most profitable, most successful home service company in the United States right now. I grew up in the trades 100%. My father was actually an accountant for Road Rear back in the day, and that's kind of how he fell into this industry. And I think, I think that seems to be fairly common. There's almost two ways to get in this industry. It's either you grew up in and you knew how advantageous it was, or you accidentally fell into it. I always like to ask that question, how'd you get in this industry? And like probably 90% of plumbers or HVAC techs go say something effective like, you always need to flush a toilet. <laughs> yeah. I did a little bit of both. I kind of fell into it by luck and grew up in it. I worked in a sheet metal shop when I was you know, 13, which I'm pretty sure is illegal, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did installs and kind of was a helper throughout my doing install throughout like high school and college over summers and part time job and after college got involved in the family business which my father had bought a year or two earlier and it was growing but not like when we all came together and came on and when I got involved in business we're about a six and a half million dollar shop last year we did over two hundred nine just in Phoenix just in one market just residential service. No commercial, no industrial, no new construction. That's a, that's the gist of the background. Amazing, yeah, for sure. And and your current role now is yeah. So I own operate Clover. It's kind of the industry's best, really GM and ownership trained arm. And then I'm still a contractor. I still own businesses across the United States. I'm involved in PE groups. It's crazy when you get into this industry. And I don't know if you guys are. I'm assuming you're like the same way. Like no one thought we could play in a, a level like this. I remember when I got in, the big company I knew of was George Brazil. And at the time, they were like a $20 million shop. And I was like, how is that possible? Yeah, that just <laughs> now, sounded insane. Yeah, and now it's oh, 20 million. Okay. Yeah, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> and everything has changed. <laughs> Kiddo. I guess you're making money, like ridiculous amount of it. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that answered the question or not, but yeah, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So we wanted to talk about the 51% today. And all I yeah. have, all we have is that the 51% exists and we wanted to know more about it. Yeah, 51%. So, so I have a huge advantage compared to other contractors. And I have a huge disadvantage and my huge, it's the same thing, which is, if I'm going to roll something out, I have to make it super scalable, super simple. I don't like like perfect pitches and perfect sales concepts where like everything is exactly the way it should be because I just know it's not scalable and I can't explain it effectively. If I want to roll something out, I have to roll out to 150 technicians. 
Like I can't do one-on-one conversations. They have to understand it right away. So 51% is a simplified concept of what gets you sale, right? A lot of people think like they get a customer to say yes to something. They have to be 100% sure or 90% or 95%. They think it's an overwhelming yes. But that's actually not true. The difference between a yes and no is just 51%. Meaning they have to want to do business 1% more than they, want, than they don't want to. Right now, that's a fairly simple concept, but here's the details to it. Right, everything you do in the house, whether it's wearing shoe covers, walking the grass, all the stuff we talk about, knocking on the door, stepping back, right? They add or remove a few percent. Unfortunately, in our industry, like they're just not like a haymaker. If you just do this, everybody says yes. That's not a real thing, right? So everything you do adds or subtracts a few percentage points, and you have. And make sure you clear 51%. And you just have to put enough things together to get to that 51%. Now, the key to this is, I think everybody's probably experienced this. Sometimes, like, a brand new tech comes into the business, and he's all of a sudden, he's a little green. He's not as experienced as everybody else, but he is killing the numbers, right? He's the best technician. He's doing the most sales. He has the most reviews. He's just, like, spot-on amazing. And people ask, why is that? Because he's got this great personality, because he's really likable. Hey, he's really, he's learning a lot. He asks a lot of questions. These are all true things, right? But for the most part, the reason that they're killing it is they're trying to earn their place and they're trying to impress people. And they're playing that how much game, right? They do everything they can to make sure they get to the 51%. They don't play the how little game. They play the how much game. They throw the kitchen sink at. They use every single tool, use every single process. They put shoe covers on every single time. They tell the story why it's important to wear shoe covers, right? They always take the customer on safari. They never walk in the door with their tools, right? They always present options. They always use an I know it's most of why. They always tell the story of the three different options, what you have to do, what you should do. This was my mother's house. They do everything you're supposed to and every single call. And because of that, they hit 51% the vast majority of the time, right? And the key to this too, 51% is not the same for each customer. Each customer has put different values on each thing, right? Like shoe covers, there are some customers who don't care at all. You've added no value by adding shoe covers. There's some customers that do. So the goal would be to do it every time because it can only help, right? Now that new technician that's killing it over time tends to slip back to the middle because they stop playing the how much game, they start playing the how little game. And the how little game is like a common, it's, it's just part of life, it's like part of being human. Like everybody plays the how little game because you can't play the how much game in everything in life. Sometimes you play the how little game, how little can I do and still get the sale. If you try to play a how much game in everything in life, you just don't have the bandwidth. Like we all play in different sections of life. Like I play the how little game on doing the dishes. Like. How little can I clean these dishes and pass my wife's approval? I'm just being honest. Like that's, that's what I do. I can't play the how much and everything because it's just not real. So I have to pick and choose who I play the how much game in. Right? The how much game I do for family, I do it for friends, and I do it for business. And almost everything else, I play the how little game because those aren't nearly as important to me. So the how much game combined with the 51% is really how the most successful technicians, business people, 
life you could have is put together. I know that's like a, I just spewed a lot of talking there, a lot of information. Oh, does that make sense? Am I rambling too much? I'm talking with you there, Josh. And I think it's a unique way of looking at it, especially that how much, how little perspective. Now, across your your years of life and specifically in the trades, have you found that you oscillated between the two? And if so, who or what was it that draw your drew your awareness to, bro, you switched from how much to how little? Yeah. So you need to put like protection like, because like when I say this is just human nature, like it's inevitable. Everybody plays the how much game at certain things in their life and certain times in your life you accidentally start playing at least more the how little game. Right. Like, and what, here's what happens. This is really obvious, like with the comfort consultant, right? But comfort consultant does step one through 32 to get the sale. And then one time they forgot step 24, but they still got the sale. So they stopped doing step 24. All of a sudden they forgot step 18 and they still got the sale. So now they're not doing step 18 and 24, but every once in a while they mix a sale. And they don't think about, hey, what was I doing that I could have gotten that sale? They don't have that retrospect. They don't have that pause. Think about and kind of debrief that call both with your dispatcher, with your install coordinator, and with yourself to kind of wrap that around. So, of course, I've played how much and how little game at multiple times in my life. And the key is, number one, you have to put a system in place for someone to check it. You keep it aware. And it's about awareness personally, too. Always after every single day, after every single call, after every single meeting, right? Like, how could I have come and played better in that meeting? How could I have showed up more? What could I have done differently? And just having this internal conversation, you'll catch it earlier. It's not about stopping it because it's not possible. It's about mitigation. And the most effective people in life, not just contractors, are not the ones that go 100% all the time because that's not real. It's the ones that realize they're not going 100% quicker than others and make adjustments. So really the way to stop it is debrief with yourself, debrief with someone else. Have, and if you don't do this with your company, right, with a dispatcher, do it with a buddy tech at the end of the day. Do it with your wife. Do it with whatever. Like speaking out loud really helps this process because you somehow when you hear it out loud, it's harder. I mean, it's just psychology, right? But it's so important to just pay attention to it and just focus on it every day. If you do it every day, you're good to go. The simple thing I do just to make sure is I literally put it on my calendar. I schedule it. So, like, it's a constant reminder. So, like, I don't have to rely on myself to remember. I built something in place to help me remember for me. So, Josh, I'm sure we've all played the the WebMD game, right? Where some, <laughs> yeah. something's going wrong with with our bodies, and we're like, okay, let's let's look up what this could be, and we start you, matching you see up. My search history, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> we start matching up some of the symptoms, and like, okay, great. I either have the common cold or I have cancer. I'm not sure which, but I have symptoms. And so, I mean, what, it could be both. It could be. And what I'm driving at here is, all right. So let's say that we're doing a little bit of self analysis. What are some of the symptoms of the how little mentality? So this is the difference between like someone who has a system for doing really a service call or business or meetings or a sales process and someone who doesn't, right? If I define what an ideal call looks like, what's my anatomy of a perfect service call? What's my anatomy of a perfect sales call? 
Which, by the way, if you want, I could send these things out just to share what my anatomy of a perfect service call is uh, to help people. If you have a step-by-step process and you know it's defined, right? Not just do this, but here's how it should feel. Here's how it should look from the customer side. Here's how I should feel. And you start defining that, that becomes real easy to be like, oh, I forgot to do that. Oh, man, I didn't pause and use tonality, right? I, oh, man, I didn't match my customer's speed of talking. I know that's going to say, okay, we'll do that again. Or, hey, I forgot to wear my booties. I didn't take them on safari. Hey, I didn't bring up a single I noticed most of why, right? I didn't do my health and safety inspection. It becomes real obvious when you define what a perfect call looks like. By the way, a perfect call, you know, it's slightly different to everybody because you have to lean into your own skill sets. I don't believe in a one-size-fits-all, but I do believe in documenting like what you think perfect should be. And then when, as you learn and grow, that gets a job. But you realize more quickly where you're not performing as well as you should be. So those are some of the symptoms for sure. For sure, yeah. And those are some of the symptoms. Those are some of the observable characteristics or examples of what's potentially going wrong if you're in the, the what, how little game. And as any good doctor would do, he would try to trace those symptoms back to the reason that they are going on. Maybe you're struggling with attention to detail and that's attributed to you're not focused, you're distracted. You got too much stuff going on at home or too much drama at work or whatever, or maybe you're disengaged and maybe you're just getting tired or worn out, or maybe you're getting beat up by the client. And so you're looking for how little I can do so I don't offend somebody. What are some of those other reasons as to why some of these symptoms might be in a, might be occurring that we can look at and say, is this how I'm actually feeling? Yeah. I mean, it obviously varies pretty significantly, but there are some like, more common ones than others. Probably the number one thing, and you kind of mentioned it, is like you're not going in with the right mindset to the call. You have an anchor. You haven't set yourself up for success. And something from some other part of your life or the call before is affecting how you show up for that call. That's probably 95% of them, right? You can't, you have to go in. It's like a baseball player, right? Every bat's new and every bat has to be treated entirely separately. And you have to know in your head that you're going to hit out of the park. And if you don't have all those things, you will strike out way more often, right? It doesn't mean well every time, but you'll do it way more often. So that's probably the biggest reason. Other common reasons are simple things like overconfidence, right? Hey, I can hit this sale anyway. Like, I don't need to do that stuff. And the biggest thing, and this is going to sound weird, but it's experience. Your biggest problem is experience. As you learn that I could skip steps, and still do it and still make that sale, it's a combination of learning that's possible and the overconfidence that I don't need it, right? But the truth is, you're right. You don't need it on every call. But this is a numbers game. No one's going to close every single call. It's not real. The best guys close more calls, right? They convert a uh, couple of consultants. The best guys in the United States, they do eight plus million and they convert 65% plus for a mix between tech generating leads and service calls. The best service tech close at 95%, right? On a repair, accessory, upsell, right? Even on a tune-up, right? So the secret is like how many missed opportunities is enough? And the answer for me is if I want the best life for my family, I want the best experience for the customer, 
no missed opportunities is enough. It's okay for them to say no. It's never okay for me not to bring it up. Yeah, Does it's, that make sense? it's okay if it's a no because of them, but not because of me. Especially, especially if it's because I didn't mention anything. A hundred percent. hundred percent. I always do two mechanic story, right? Everybody's probably heard that. I think mechanics are like great references to AT tests because I think they're similar mentality industries. Like no one really wants to go to parent mechanics. No one really trusts them, right? No one really knows what's going on. And I think that's similar to our industry. It's just the truth, right? And that's because of a few bad apples. The vast majority of car mechanics are really great, hardworking, honest people. But just a few bad apples can ruin a whole industry, right? I talk about, you know, I live in Phoenix. If I'm driving up to California to visit my buddy for a week there, and I'm going to drive to the mountains, I'm due for an oil change. I take it into car mechanic. Car mechanic number one goes in, does the oil change just like that. It's $45, sends me on my way in 15 minutes. That's a great car mechanic, right? Yeah. I'm most people say that's a good car mechanic. Now, if I went to car mechanic number two, the exact same situation, he went ahead and changed your oil like, like he's supposed to. But then he looked at the rest of the vehicle and he saw my tires were bubbling a little bit. My brake pads were low. And he go to me and say, Hey, if I were you, I would go ahead and replace them. It's totally up to you. And I decided to go ahead and replace them. I'm driving to California and I have a flat tire or my brakes don't go bad or brakes don't stop down a hill. Who's the better mechanic? It's always the mechanic number two. The key to a good mechanic is not, can they do the work? That's an expectation. You don't get credit for doing what you're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. You get credit and become a better tech and you become a main player by being thorough and having conversations. And if you have conversations with every single call, that's more than enough to win for me. So Josh, let's say that I have found myself into the how little game and I'm realizing like, oh crap, he just called me out and yeah, that's me. That sounds like me. Those are some of the things and that are happening and some of the attitudes that I'm feeling. If I have a desire to change and I'd be like, I'm not going to be the how little guy anymore. I'm tired of that dude. I want to be the how much guy. What are some practical steps to help me move across that line? I mean, yeah. Number one is to find, if you haven't already, what an ideal or a perfect call looks like. Go through that process, really understand what it should be, right? And then go back to the basics. Start making the extra effort. All the things that you used to do when you first started, all the things that you've been taught, all the tools and the training, like just start. Do everything. Don't have to say as long as it's not conflicting, try it. Go and do it consistently every single time. That's going to help on the very basics of it. The other side to it is I would really heavily recommend anchoring. Anchoring and takes away that emotional cue, that 95%. It's, you know, it's so easy. I missed those last two calls. Ah, this house isn't in the right neighborhood. The grass is out of control. But we all know, like, that's sometimes the ones that pull cash out of their mattress. You know what I mean? You can't go in with the mindset that this is an automatic. Yeah, anchoring is a good way of affecting that. I would really heavily recommend anybody who hasn't read. It's one of the best sales books of all time. It's The Way of the Wolf by Jordan Belfort, the guy from uh, Wolf of Wall Street. He talks specifically about anchoring, but essentially what anchoring is, is it's a way to take your, to physically do something and take you back to an emotional state. And there's different ways that you can anchor. You can be calm, you can anchor, be excited. Or in a technician's place, you can anchor to be that killer that I could take on the world. Like I cannot fail. Because every once in a while you feel that way. Whether that's, hey, I went skydiving, I had turkey, whatever, three strikes in a row, like, where you're like, oh my God, I'm freaking killing it. 
and I could anchor myself to that emotional state. And when I go out to service stall, I could use that physical attribute, that physical tool to take me right back to that feeling. So every time I walk into the house, I feel like I'm on fire. So if you were to do those two things, and really I would say the anchoring is probably solve some more problems than one because most people have issues with I'm stressed at home, I'm exhausted, whatever. All that goes away when you anchor. So I would heavily recommend reading that book and going through the details. It's absolutely amazing. All my salespeople certainly do it. Salespeople across the United States do it. Technicians tend to do it less, but it's because they're just not as well-read or versed on sales tactics. They should be, right? A good technician, I know a lot of technicians love fixing things, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's something really powerful and beautiful about seeing something get finished with your own hand and something that's stress relieving and all that, right? But if we're real honest about this, if you want to be really successful and you want to set your family up for life and you want to not struggle or worry about things when you're older and have a fair retirement and be able to take care of your kids and send them to college or whatever it looks like for you or take that major vacation and buy that dream house or that boat, like part of the conversation has to be I need to be able to help customers more by convincing them to do things that they should do. So you should read sales books. You should anchor. You should build a process. You can't, you shouldn't just think of yourself as that card mechanic that changes the oil. So that's an interesting concept and one that I'm not sure I'm terribly familiar with. And perhaps our listeners are in that same boat. So if this was like my first time establishing an anchor, where would you tell me to start? So this is a complicated answer to a simple question, but everybody's anchor should be different. So I'm not going to do it because you can't see me anyway. And by the way, anybody who sees me, please don't mess with me on this because it means it does a lot to me when I anchor. But if you anchor in front of me with my anchor, I'll, you'll still hype me up. And it sounds really goofy and who cares, but if I anchored at a funeral, I would be so excited. Like there's healthy ways and healthy places <laughs> to do it. So what I do is I clap my hands together, rub them together, and I say, let's go. And I want to do all those things in context. I'm, I'm having a physical, tactile feel. I hear a noise, right? And uh, there's physical movement involved. So I'm combining really three senses into one. The best one, by the way, smell. But I just don't want to carry something with me my whole life. That's the honest truth. <laughs> so every time I do that, I can take myself back to this super excited emotional state. The set and anchor, all you have to do is re- recognize hey, I just did something amazing. I feel great. And it, it could be the stupidest thing in the world. It's like, I did backflip into a pool. I didn't think I was going to be able to. Now I'm jazzed up. I'm like, did you see that? Anchor. So when you anchor, you do that three or four times. It's all it takes three or four times. You'll start doing that anchor. Like your body has this way of taking that physical thing that you're doing and tying it with your emotion. So when you're feeling that high and that extreme excitement, that, oh my God, you see what I just did. Holy crap, that was amazing. You do that anchor and your body associates the two. And at first, the anchor is secondary because it happened and then you did it. Over time, the more and more you set it, the anchor becomes the primary and it takes your emotion cue into it. It only takes three or four times to start hooking it, but it takes dozens of times for it to be like, holy crap. I could be crying and I could anchor and I'm excited about the world. And the key is like, just you anchor every time you feel that way. Like it doesn't matter. And you just got a great sale. You just flip the lead and the guy was a little difficult and you just, you killed it. And he explained it so well. And like, you just saved him a ton of money. You, uh, I, I use a bowling example, skydiving. 
a backflip. I'm on a boat with my buddies and I just feel alive, right? This weekend, I'm going to my 20-year high school reunion. It's going to be so great to see guys I haven't seen in 20 years, really 10 years since the last reunion, right? But 20 years, I bet I'm going to feel great. I'll probably anchor. For me, it's like speaking on stage or there's all kinds of different things. Everybody gets jazzed with different stuff. When I get super excited about something, I always have this in my mind. I'm like, the moment I feel, anchor. Because the more I set it, the stronger it becomes. A good example of this is like, Smell, as I said, is like the, by far the best anchor. It's the most effective because it's a strong extent to your memory. Everybody has a smell. And a good example of this, and I'm not Italian, I'm Irish American. My wife's actually Irish. Some Italian Americans will tell me, like, the smell of meatballs or red sauce it takes back to their, it takes you back to their kitchen when they were a kid cooking with their mom. And you can see it, and you can feel it, and it's like around you. You know what I mean? That's an anchor. That's happened by accident. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I've heard the whole scent right? thing to memory before. And that's really cool. Yeah. But yeah, think about this, right? It takes you back to a memory. It doesn't just take you back to remembering. You feel an emotion attached to that. Like food specifically, like that example, and I've had lots of people explain this to me, and different foods are different things, right? But you feel calm, you feel love, you feel happy. Yeah, like the first time Brian heard a, the first time Brian heard a Celine Dion song, wow. right back to it. <laughs> and every time since. You wouldn't believe what I had to do to argue him out of using that as our intro music. <laughs> yeah. The Titanic song. I say it for yourself or you know, what's the thought process here? <laughs> so if you have, if you experience one of these anchor moments, like a touchstone moment where you're going to go, <clears throat> this touchstone moment is going to be my anchor. Does it make sense to, while you're experiencing that moment, if you're alert enough or have the wherewithal to make it your anchor, does it make sense to quick find something to smell? So yes and no. So like I choose my anchor specifically because I don't want to carry something with me all the time. Right. That smell has to be like, you can't just do the smell of food and take you back. It's a specific smell. Right. And you're not going to carry meatball in your pocket your whole life. That's just not real. Right. I'm going to eat it every time. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here's my theory on anchors. Everybody has different theories. I'm a little bit. I think it has to be. It has to be unique enough where you're not going to run into it every day. Because the truth is, I said in the beginning, if you came up to me and you clap your hands together, rub them together, and said, "Let's go," it doesn't affect me nearly as much as when I do it. But you will affect me. So it can't be like pounding fists because then you're going to you have no control over it. Obnoxious then you can't do it in public. You don't want it to be like, I ripped my shirt and scream. I can't do that. The maybe the Hulk maybe, Hogan move. maybe yes. that's what Terry Nichols' thing was. He made it about you where he'd go, I'm excited about your future. Yeah, that's good. And maybe that was his, his anchor. That is his anchor. That's real. That really is his anchor. Yeah. He openly talked about that. Just so you're aware. Yeah. <laughs> so the best one to so like Jordan does it. And when he does it, uh, those little lip glosses, he has an orange scented lip gloss. It's like that. Almost say a smell down. Like orange creamsicle, you know that smell? Oh yeah, I actually have the same. Right? I have the same chapstick in my car. Yeah, so he carries that chapstick in his pocket at all times. And what he is when he anchors, he smells that chapstick. The smell is by far the most effective way of doing it. Right? You only need smell. I'm combining several senses to get like seventy percent of what smell would be. But I just know me. I don't want to carry a piece of chapstick in my pocket my entire life. Sure. 
But that would be the better way of doing it, if we're being honest. I think, I think that's a really cool concept and one that feels unique in terms of stuff that we've had on our podcast before and yet could really be applicable. Would you? Is it too much to say, smell that chapstick before you go into every call? Or is this, oh man, this is a really good one? It, it, can so, we, so here's the thing. Right? <laughs> we don't want like, to get addicted salespeople. to the chapstick. <laughs> <laughs> salespeople are like a great example of this, right? Because like the best salespeople, they anchor perfectly. The great salespeople tend to anchor after that. So have you ever heard this where a comfort song, like before you go to the call, he stops down the street, he plays the same music before every call, right? Sits there and listens and gets himself excited, right? That's a version of a poorly done anchor. Oh, like because, in Gone in 60 Seconds, they turn on War or what? I think it's... Yeah. Yeah. Row rider, low rider. That's yeah, what it is. They turn on low rider. Yeah, there we go. Low rider, and they just sit there and listen to the music before they go boost a bunch of cars. But <laughs> or like Celine Dion, I get. It. Yeah, hundred percent. Exactly. Yeah. You nailed it. Brian's so much happier right now. All right, that's enough with the Celine Dion stuff. All right, buddy. <laughs> we're we're abusing his anchor. We You're making me blush. Chill out a little bit. So that's like a not a well thought record. It's good because to a point they get to reset themselves. But like, we're gonna carry. You're going to put your AirPods in your ear and play on your phone every time you feel great. It's harder to set the anchor because it's not repeatable. Does that make sense? So I would heavily recommend, like everyone, like it takes, like you're not going to be able, you're not going to hear this podcast and you're not going to be an anchor today because you have to find yourself in that emotional state three or four times before you start that. But it only takes three or four times. And it doesn't have to be like, I could take on the entire world, right? But you have to feel like, oh man. I'm doing well right now. Like, and you build your anchor up. It's like a, I don't know, it's like a sticker, right? You put a sticker up something once, it leaves a little residue. You stick it right back on, it plays a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Eventually, that sticker won't stick. But all the sticking is the stuff on the wall. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that does make sense. It, overdoing it to the point where it matters very little anymore. I mean, an anchor, the more you do it, like that sticker is no longer necessary. I don't need that sticker for that sticker okay, okay. on the wall. Okay. I can pull it. I, it's just there anytime I need it. So it becomes stronger the more often you do it, as long as you're doing it. You know, you, you don't want to like, yeah, really, just every time you do it, it becomes stronger. But it takes a few times for you to set that anchor. It won't work one time. That is mystifying that it works that way. And I have not tried this, but to think that it, the law of diminishing returns is almost reversed. It's on his head. It's head in this particular case is pretty cool. If you think about like in, in your life, there's things that you do that make you happy or excitable. And there's things that like only make you happy and excitable, right? Meaning there's never any negative connotation to it. And those things, as you do them, make you happier and more excitable each time because that's just how the human body works. Like it, it seeks comfort, ease, good feelings above all else, right? And that diminishing return isn't a real thing unless there's negativity associated with it. And with an anchor, like there is no negativity associated. Now, to be clear, you could anchor negatively if you want. I was just going to ask you that. You would want to. I was just going to ask yeah. you that because... I feel like I know plenty of the people in the trades who want to. I mean, in reality, you know, I'll harken back. I'll harken back to a moment of embarrassment that's prompted by either a scent or a song or a moment or something that re reminds me of that. And then I get depressed for a little bit. Oh, remember that time when that was really embarrassing or really painful or whatever. So it, it can work the other way. How do we guard against that? If perhaps we already have some of those set up in our lives, how can we undo an anchor? Yeah. So you know who does negative anchors is like acid, right? 
they take back, they take themselves still to that emotional state and put them going on. They can cry on the spot as really good actors. They have a system with that. They, they tend to do something physical that you're not aware of, but they're aware of, right? To bring that back. If you have a negative anchor, like, honest, like, anchors that are set well are, are pretty difficult to remove. I would make the argument, like, probably not worth the effort of trying to remove Unless it was something like, every time I hear clapping, I got PTSD, and I go back to a day, like, that just needs a lot of therapy, right? But if you have a smell that takes you back to an embarrassing spot, like, it, it, as long as you don't keep, like, doing embarrassing things and smelling that thing again, it'll fade slightly, but it probably won't go away because anchors are just so powerful. It's amazing. It's a, it's like an evolution thing. Hey, when you smell this or you hear this, it means danger or opportunity or whatever. And a few times is all it takes for your body to positively or negatively reinforce that. And it doesn't matter whether that, that it used to be a wolf that howled is now a dog, right? That you're used to. But if you were, grew up in the time of wolves before they were domesticated, right? Every time you hear that noise, it'd be a fear. And it doesn't matter whether the dog's there and you know it's a good thing. You, every time you would hear it, it would just take you back. It just is what it is. There's almost no way of avoiding it. Yeah. Um, Cause it's been anchored several times over a period of time. Yeah. I grew up in Detroit and every time I hear a car backfire to this day, I'm hitting the ground. Well, I, I mean, I probably wouldn't hit the ground like every time. No, but I, I, it's true though. I, like Dead this, serious. Like the urge comes when you hear pop, you immediately yeah. try to hit the ground. It's a negative anchor when you're wearing a nice pair of slacks and a polo shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got nothing sure. but black top. And, and the truth is like you, you could go through a ton of therapy and try to remove that. Or you can just accept like, hey, it's probably just going to happen. And I'm going to feel like that for a few seconds. And I'm going to know that's going to pass. And you live with it. Because it would be so difficult to know that. So, so you have got, to do an LP or something, you know? Got what? You'd have to do like NLP. You ever heard, and I think this is totally off topic, but not entirely, but it's a negative anchor. You ever heard like Tony Robbins? I've spoken on stage with Tony Robbins. And whether you like him or not, like there's, he's an amazing business person and obviously could talk people and doing some crazy stuff. You ever heard about how he started really with his, he does NLP, which is like psychology, right? How he first started doing that? No. It's like the craziest, coolest story ever. So he used to go around city to city and say, like, uh, it was the 80s or whatever. And uh, he goes, you spend two hours with me. You'll never smoke again. And that was his pitch. And he charged her. And he would get people who had smoked their whole life, try to quit five, five, six, ten, twenty times, whatever. And he could just never break the habit. So what he would do is he'd have them meet in the hotel room. And back in the day, you could have, you could smoke in a hotel room. You probably weren't supposed to, but you did anything. And he would have them meet in the hotel room and say, okay, tell me about it. And talk for a few minutes. He goes, hey, let's go take a walk. And he would go down to the lobby, right? And he go, hey, let's buy some cigarettes. And they'd be weird out. I'm trying not to smoke. He goes, no, we're just going to buy some cigarettes. And he goes, okay. And you know, at the shop, they're so expensive. She's creating a pain point right away. He goes, why don't we buy five cases of cigarettes? And the person would be like, five cases? Yeah, buy five cases right now. 
right now, five o'clock cases. So they buy five cases of cigarettes, which are 20 packs per case. It's, it's like a hundred packs of cigarettes. And then, was it 20 cigarettes each pack? Is that what it is? Yeah, 20 in a pack. Yeah, yeah. So you're looking at a, even if you're a consistent smoker, you know, a ton, ridiculous amount of cigarettes. So let's go back up to the room. And he would sit down and he would lock the door. And he would scoot a table in front of the door so he couldn't leave. So Tony Robbins is like a six six dude with a horse mouth and a gigantic dude, right? And he's sitting there and he just closed the door on the created this incredibly uncomfortable space in a hotel room. And he goes, Why don't we unwrap? Open all these packs. And okay, right. Open, I want you to open all five cases. I want you to open every single pack. Right? And yeah, I have them go through that process and unwrapping every single one, each one individually wraps them. Now they're all open. Because I want you to lift the tops on every single one. I want you to line them up. Line them up on the desk here. So he lines the whole thing up, right? So he's got thousands of cigarettes in front of him. He just paid a ton of money. And he goes, okay, why don't you smoke one? Let me let you just go ahead and light up right now. Guy's trying to quit. And he goes, I don't really want to smoke a cigarette. And I go, have a cigarette. And he would smoke a cigarette, right? And he goes, light another one. So he's got one in his hand already. I want you to light another one. And he would yell at him, light one now. He'd smoke two cigarettes, right? He goes, light up another one. And he'd smoke a three cigarettes. Now the guy's starting to push back a little bit. He goes, light one now. They get more and more aggressive, more and more harsh. More. And by the end, the guy would be smoking 20 cigarettes at once, all his fingers, all the way up and down. He's smoking a cigarette, smoking a cigarette. He's getting sick. He's feeling nauseous. And Tony Robbins is just screaming, smoke the cigarettes, light another one, light another one, light another one, light another one. And what happens is they go to a point where eventually that person would say, I'm not smoking another cigarette. He would stand up to Tony and would scream at him and say, I'm not smoking one. And then Tony would say, okay, you're going to have to smoke another cigarette again. He'd put him out and they would leave. What they did there is he created such a negative emotional anchor to smoking cigarettes that for the rest of their life, they associate that smoking a cigarette, that smell with that terrible, terrible experience where he's locked in a hotel room with Tony Robbins screaming at him, feeling sick and smoking 20 cigarettes at once. Wow. And all the intimidation because he's a monster of a man and his yeah. voice is loud he, and booming. Like I imagine this being a, and I'm not small, but I imagine that with Tony Robbins being a terrifying experience and then add to it the smell of the cigarette, the taste of the cigarette. Yeah, it's got to be a whole, I imagine this had to be yeah, pretty effective. So Tony said there's something to the fact of he did this for a thousand people, uh, and then he stopped doing because he thought he was getting so much secondary smoke he was going to kill him. Probably, <laughs> <He's> probably right. <laughs> he said he did this for about a thousand people, and then he went back 20 years later to all these people, and 997 of the thousand had never smoked a cigarette again. Wow, that's crazy. So what's the equivalent of that for? I'd like uh, to have a conversation with the other three <laughs> if we can get them on the podcast. What are you doing? Yeah. What's the equivalent of that for our industry, man? Like, how do we, how do we get that type of retention or retainment of the, the all the practices for, for and zero ideas? tickets <laughs> for zero <laughs> goose eggs? How do we get our tickets that terrified yeah. of a goose egg? Ah, you don't. You could. Uh, so 
obviously like negative emotions are far more powerful than positive emotions. We all know that. Like a simple example, if there's people who hate to lose uh, and there's people that like to win. People that hate to lose, lose far less often. A negative experience or negative emotion, it's just a stronger experience. It's biological, like danger is more important indicator than good smell. You know what I mean? So like it just naturally takes over. So could you negatively anchor your technician? You could. Good luck retaining them. <laughs> All right. No one wants to be yelled and screamed at. But the opposite. Even though you know it's not as effective, you you positively reinforce it. You create the anchors on positive things. We're we're gonna have to and bring in like we a, a all hip- do this to a way. It's just how effective we do it. We're going to have to bring in a hypnosis guy and start <laughs> triggering all of our brand new employees that when they hear finger snapping or something like that, they just go into this perfect value build statement. And then, you know, what's funny is it, it without really knowing it, a lot of companies like this one and like the one you were at, we do this probably, you were doing it probably before, before you heard that concept from Jordan Belfort, which is like guys in the trades who have come from nothing and never really had a win in their life largely. And I do mean this, you see this over and over and over with the youth that come into the trades is they have no real wins to hang their hat on until they get here. And then we do something completely different than the majority of contracting companies that have existed ever before, which is like a guy hits his first big month or first big water treatment sale or flips his first lead that sells or what, whatever it is in whatever version it is. And you celebrate that in a big morning meeting and he might get a, a spiff or the whole crew stands up and claps for him. That could very yeah, we, well we do, be. We do all that. And then we give a broken record, like a gold record that's been shattered and put back in oh, wow. a picture frame. I like that. Nate, cut this wow. out of the podcast so and then let's do this and then act like we came <laughs> up with it. All right, buddy, just hit, let this hit the editing floor. <laughs> Yeah, so it's Perfect. so that it, oftentimes it is the biggest win they've ever had, and they can definitely anchor to something like that. Oh, 100%. Like anchoring, and by the way, this was not even a topic, but this is what we're going Anchoring, like, it doesn't have to be the key to this, is like, it doesn't have to be this gigantic thing. Because, and number one, well, how big something is is different to everyone else, right? Everybody has different goals and different, different things they want to achieve in life and different success levels, and that's totally okay. In fact, who am I to say they're not successful in any way? Because I think some of the technicians I know, they make good money. They're done when they leave work and they're some of the happiest people in the world. And some of the contractors I know make a ton of money and are miserable. It's all relative, right? But the key to this is you don't have to like, it doesn't have to be this gigantic, ridiculous win to start building that emotional anchor. It just has to be enough of a win where you're excited. And it builds upon itself every time you do it. That's great stuff, man. And we're, we're unfortunately going to be bringing it in for a landing here. But before we do, we want to talk about some of the things that you're creatively doing with your marketing firm. What is it that you're finding success in the marketplace? And is that specific to our industry or are you more generic and out there? Also, before you even get there, <clears throat> what, what made you go from what you were doing successfully doing to get into the marketing game yeah and we're called really clover marketing is a branch of our company we do really mass media and strategy for for certain businesses we only take on a few businesses because essentially we partner with them and we become 
their in-house marketing team. And it's a lot of effort and like you have to really understand the business. You have to understand what an owner or a GM is trying to achieve. So marketing is a small piece of what we do, but it's probably, I don't know how much we spend in marketing across the United States, but um, it's mid eight years for sure, which is crazy. That's by the way. But really what we do most of the time is really just GM consulting, training, best practices. That's the majority of what we're doing. I, I have done and will continue to do tech training, but I learned a long time ago that if I did tech training or comfort consultant training, no matter how good a job I did, if it wasn't repeated every single day, it just doesn't have the legs to stand. So I decided to pivot and, hey, I'm only going to focus on the people that teach other people. And if I teach them to teach really well, that has a much larger and longer impact. So that's kind of what I do now. Why I do it? Honest answer is a few reasons. Number one, Perkins Fund sold to the Wrench Group. We're a Keystone company. I used to have a software business, which was a really big opportunity. I was an executive at a billion-dollar home service company. We're trying to Uberize home services based out of San Francisco. So I just had some opportunities come up, and I take chips off the table, and I just I wanted to try the challenge and try something new. That's part of it, and part of it is. Like, I didn't grow to the success I had or the knowledge I have or the tools I have because of me. I had a lot of help on the way. And I visited, at this point, I probably did to over a 1,000 shops or right around 1,000 where I learned, hey, what worked, what didn't work, what I could do differently, what I definitely shouldn't do sometimes, right, and go through this process. And... That was one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reasons, I was successful. I also think things a little bit differently than most people. I'm also a little more introspective. I go outside the industry and learn a lot more than other people. But that was the biggest opportunity I had. And with all this PE money coming in and everything kind of changing the industry, like your ability to visit other shops has really dropped. I've always helped other contractors one-on-one. But I just realized that they weren't getting the same help from each other that they once had. And I decided, like, my way of giving back to the industry that's giving me so much is to really help people change, not only the owner change their life, change their technicians' lives, change their CSRs' lives. They needed access to other really great contractors. And nobody turns me down. And more or less, if I want to visit your shop, they're happy to have me. In fact, they'll generally pay a ton of money to have me in. A lot of times I'll go just because I want to go and learn. But I, I bridge the gap of what's working across the United States and the lack of access that they have right now really is as both an opportunity and as a thank you because I couldn't have done it without that. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect sense. Why do you think with the PE firms and bringing that money in, it, it's lessening the opportunity to go to other shops? Is it because they're becoming one big company at times or one big competitor and they're not letting people in. I've not heard that concept before. I don't know how many big shops you visit, but it's awfully hard to get in big shops unless you're a really big name anymore. The truth is like a P company, one of the reasons a P company gets the multiples that they have is because they're a closed door system. They okay. can't share anymore. Yeah. You need proprietary thing. Exactly. So access is really, especially over the last, year but for years yeah less and less because these p groups originally was like buy the company don't mess with them they're growing they're successful but that was a short-term play and everybody who was involved in it knew it 
because for a PE group to get the most money they can, they have to be able to tell a story that, hey, our entire, every company on the program does this is unique soft, and they force everyone to start doing the same thing, which number one, helps some companies, hurts many, right? But the evaluation is what they care about, and the evaluation always increases. And the other side is, hey, this is unique to us, this is special, so now no one else has access to it unless you're part of the team. So even inside team groups, your ability to share and do things is going to consistently become less and less because you'd be forced into, not as far as a franchise model, but like that kind of concept, like we all do the same thing and that's why we're worth so much. And from the outside in, like we have a secret sauce that you can't see. That makes sense. Josh, this has been great. It can be way worse than it is now. Every year it will get worse and worse. And that's because more and more money gets involved. Josh, this has been great information today, and you certainly brought a lot of applicable things to our audience. If people are interested in learning more about you or your firm, where's a good place to find that information? Yeah, just you can go to the website, growwithclover.com. Honestly, if you want to talk to me, like I always respect somebody who's brave enough and confident enough to reach out directly. Hit me up. Just email me, josh at growwithclover.com. If you want a quick response, you go to the website, go to the team. If you don't mind it taking a day, I'd love to hear from you too. So just email me directly. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on, Josh. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And we definitely, I can speak for both of us, I think, want to do this again soon. Yeah, appreciate you being yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. Liked it. All right, Josh. Thank thanks you so much. You bet. Hey, that's a wrap for this podcast. Some really cool and unique things that Josh Kelly shared with us there and some things that perhaps you want to put into your daily routine right away. And of course, if you're looking for a little bit of help on the marketing side of things, check him out at his firm, growwithclover.com. And good stuff from Josh today. That's it for this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to share it around, leave a review and a five-star would be awesome. We'd appreciate that. And of course, we want to keep challenging you with great guests and content. So let us know what you're interested in and who you'd love to hear. That's it for today. So we want to leave you with our weekly challenge, which is to choose to wake up each and every morning and waste no day. 